0: Hi there everyone, I'm Naomi Mella and you're listening to Smashing the Ceiling, the podcast that tells the stories of women with interesting, unusual and inspiring careers. We're now 10 episodes in and this is the last of the original group of interviews that I initially recorded, thinking that I would start with 10 women and grow from there. It's been a massive learning curve, but the response has been great and I am just loving this project so much that there is no doubt that this is going to be an ongoing thing. Thanks so much for your support and for listening, I really do appreciate it. If you want to contact me with any feedback or suggestions, I would love to hear from you. And you can now email me at smashingtheceiling at gmail.com. So on to today's guest. Barbara Natterson Horowitz is first and foremost a doctor, but after 25 years as a cardiology specialist at the UCLA Medical Center, an unexpected turn of events took her via LA Zoo to a New York Times best-selling book, Zubiquity, a TED Talk watched by over 300,000 people and now to Harvard, where she is on a year-long tenure as Professor of Evolutionary Medicine. Barbara is interested in the links between human and veterinary medicine, and how what we know about one species can affect our interpretation and treatment of disease in other animals. Handily, both her kids are also studying at Harvard, so she is solving the empty nest problem in a pretty unique way. A lot of her work now involves comparative studies between humans and various animal species, with collaborations galore across the medical and veterinary fields. I started by asking Barb about this and how she defines the questions she wants answered in her work.
1: I mean, that's the fun of it actually. And, um, and I, I've been thinking about it from an evolutionary perspective. So I practiced human cardiology for 25 years. And, um, I mean, you know, working at UCLA in the cardiac care unit and, you know, in our outpatient clinic, so heart attacks, high cholesterol, strokes, (laughs) hypertension, all that. And, um, you know, I had this experience where. Um, I was called by the veterinarian at our local zoo, at the Los Angeles Zoo, to help do some cardiac ultrasound imaging of um, one of their great apes. Actually, the first patient was a chimpanzee, and then that led to a gorilla, and that led to an orang, and then they started um, expanding to non-ape primates, and then eventually they trusted me with some of their, a taper and a lion and and, you know, a bear. It was very exciting. So um, that was really my first exposure to veterinary medicine, um, other than taking my own cat or dog in for, you know, this or that. And um, so that that experience that was about twelve years ago. And um, when I started listening to the vets on rounds, when you guys, you know, I mean, sitting around a wooden table at the LA Zoo with a bunch of donuts in the middle, exactly the format that we have at the human hospital. And I heard the vets, you know, having a conversation about managing metastatic breast cancer or um, the dosing of uh, insulin in a brittle diabetic mandrel, or you know, how much Prozac, fluoxetine, which is the generic for Prozac to use on a compulsive animal. It really, I, I really had, I mean, honestly, the only aha moment of, it, of that, I'd never had an aha moment in my life like that. And I, I thought, wow, there's a parallel universe happening. Uh, in veterinary medicine, that even though I was a full professor of medicine, I'd been teaching medical students for years and years, and I'd been taking care of patients in, you know, in at the county hospital, at the ven- veterans hospital, at the, you know, at our tertiary care center in so many different forms. I'd never thought about these same diseases occurring in non-human animals, because it, it's not the way physicians are taught. And it was not on my radar at all. So anyway, I started getting really interested in this. And first I, I was just curious about how much of an overlap there was between the diseases that I was taking care of in human patients and you guys take care of in your patients. And I mean, and again, when I'm talking to a veterinarian such as yourself about this, it's almost embarrassing to, um, expose that it was an aha moment because it's a comparative approach is the essence of, of your training and your, it's the way vets see the world, but, um, a human exceptionalism is alive and well in human medicine. And we have a, like a homo sapien centric, um, approach. And so, uh, but anyway, I, I, so I started, I, you know, asking like, do, do non-human mammals, um, develop breast cancer or prostate cancer or brain tumors? Do they develop, you know, asthma or concussions or, seizures and um, and then i was really and i have been interested in women's health and so i was thinking well do female animals develop endometriosis or polycystic ovarian syndrome or infertility and you're nodding your head because you know that all of these things are species spanning at least at least the vulnerability to them is the the incidence of the occurrence of the rates that's a different story but so this was really like an uh a light bulb for me and um, very, very disruptive of how I thought about disease. So I thought about heart disease, heart attacks, atherosclerosis, hypertension, diabetes as being, you know, diseases of modern human civilization. And and it's that's not a completely inaccurate statement, right? We know that you know our our bad habits, our obesity, our cigarette smoking. Our stress, our inactivity, all those things do contribute to disease, but that's really those factors really increase our risk of the disease, but actually that essential vulnerability it's shared by these other animals so it was it was um, the beginning of a very big change in what I started to think about sort of all day long, and what I started reading about and um, writing about, and eventually made a, a kind of a not a u turn I would say it was a 90 degree turn from thinking about human medicine as my focus to thinking about veterinary medicine as this parallel universe I wanted to explore. And then when you're looking at human medicine and veterinary medicine, if you're looking at human beings and animals and looking for common diseases and common vulnerabilities, you're talking about evolution. You're talking about evolutionary biology. And so that's how I ended up in in this field that's called evolutionary medicine.
0: So, how would you say that thinking changed the way you approach clinical cases in humans? gosh i mean it's
1: it's transformed how I see every single disease from um, heart attacks to breast cancer to even psychiatric diseases like anxiety um, or eating disorders or you know self injury these these kinds of problems so I mean the first the first is um, is the simple recognition that vulnerability to these diseases is not unique to our species, and so first, what that does to me is it it shifts how I think about blame and shame. Um, you know, so often when people get cancer, or they have a heart attack, everyone around them kind of is wondering, you know, what they did. People blame themselves, and their families blame them, and. And you know it's so interesting, like there's a statistic in human medicine that um, about ten percent of all cases of lung cancer, at least, happen in people who never smoked, right? so and that that's already kind of a disruptive um, piece of really important information, right? that that, yeah, of course, obviously, cigarette smoking it's it's really bad. It increases your risk of lung cancer. But there are some individuals who they're genetically or for whatever reason, they're they're very vulnerable to developing lung cancer that it's not always what you do. And, you know, I read this, um, this veterinary pathologist wrote this paper that, um, she did this huge taxonomy of breast cancer across the animal kingdom. These are necro- necropsy proven, you know, histology with breast cancer It published in the peer reviewed veterinary literature and breast cancer in a beluga whale and breast cancer in, you know, camels and llamas and, and then of course, domestic cats and dogs and, um, and, uh. And I started thinking about how obvious this was in a way. That why wouldn't an animal who had a breast be vulnerable to breast cancer? But it's, 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 it, it. There were so many questions that that sparked in me and that I'd never thought about before. And it made, it. First of all, I think it made me think of. Um, it made me feel more connected to the animal world. Um, I started feeling myself as a female connected to other female animals. Um, every time I have a mammogram or I have a, you know a anything with, with my own breast, that sort of thing. So there, there was that piece of it. It also, um, you know, I mean, I'm a cardiologist, so I deal with this disease, atherosclerosis, right? Which is the disease that's responsible for heart attacks and stroke. It's where cholesterol ends up in the artery of the, of the artery, in the wall of the artery and learning that all kinds of non-human animals can have some cholesterol come through the endothelium, you know, that, that lining in the inside of the vessel and cause the, these plaques inside the, the the wall of the artery it was, again, on the one hand, kind of obvious talking to you, right? And and now, 10 years later, of course, you know, we all, every vertebrate has this, this the, our vessels are very, very similar in terms of their structure. We, you know, it makes sense that we would all have this vulnerability. But, you know, learning about, atherosclerosis and heart attacks in birds in vultures in canaries and in, 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 and and learning about you know atherosclerosis occurring in gosh I just read a study about some hippopotami in Africa in the 1960s who had um, atherosclerotic plaque in their aortas right so it's so um it's so disruptive of the way i thought about these diseases as being essentially caused by obesity and poor diets, et cetera, and sedentary lifestyle. Now, having said that, since I am a practicing cardiologist, there's no question that avoiding cigarette smoking and staying lean and active and not having high blood pressure and maintaining a normal cholesterol and not developing type 2 diabetes, all of those things significantly reduces an individual human being's chance of developing those problems. But that's different from suggesting that the problems themselves are uniquely
0: human or unique to our modern times. It's funny. On the flip side of that, I would say as a vet that we are seeing increasing amounts of the impacts of obesity, particularly on the domestic animal population, be that horses, cats, dogs, whatever other species it may be, that they are now starting to even more reflect the problems the human population has with obesity and the diseases that causes. And increasingly, we're now seeing that in the animal populations
1: and i i agree and, and the human footprint is everywhere not just in our domestic animals so there's you know we think about um we know that antibiotics are used in agriculture to increase the body mass of of cows and pigs and you know and there's a lot of there's a big movement to limit the use of growth promoting antibiotics right in 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 agriculture and part of the reason for that is that the antibiotics end up you know in our food in our environment And there there are some problems about, you know, antibiotic resistance that emerges as a consequence of that. But another possible consequence is that we all may be exposed to more antibiotics. And perhaps there are changes in our gut microbiome that are contributing to the obesity epidemic. It's not just the fact that we are eating more and exercising less, although I secretly believe privately, I think that's 95% of it. But how interesting if you know, part of why, and by the way, there are some wild animal populations that are also increasing in body mass, which is fascinating. But you know, another, I mean, this obesity is such a perfect um, problem in human medicine to think about from a a comparative perspective, right? So um, uh, you're a vet, so forgive me, and, and please correct me if I say this inaccurately. But there are, as I understand, and I've been told, there are dog breeds that are very vulnerable to obesity, like America's Favorite breed is the lab, a Labrador Retriever, and I've never had a lab as a pet. But I understand that um, labs they get fat pretty easily. And um, on the other end of the spectrum, I have been told that there are groups of their breeds like whippets and um, Italian Greyhounds, um, Afghan Hounds, who you, who you can't you cannot make them fat. So that's if that's true, that's fascinating because we know that there are. Interesting genetic differences between these breeds—that's the basis of their differential behavioral and physical phenotypes—are these differing genomics. And I mean, gosh, are we are we looking at a natural animal model of leanness in some of these in some of these breeds? Okay, so obesity. A lot of physicians feel that obesity is the number one. I mean, even though even though heart disease we say is the leading killer, obesity and obesity related diseases are really killing. At least Americans. I mean, you know, it's it's a complete. It's a, it's a, it's an epidemic. And I mean, that information that you have about the varying rates of obesity and metabolic rates in these breeds, that's so relevant to human life. But but I go around the country, I talk to physicians and so, uh, there's so, there's not even the awareness that there's this opportunity to understand the human animal by reaching out to experts on non-human animals, especially on problems that are shared. It's just such a waste and
0: it should change. So how did you go about starting to write your book? Because lots of people who are doctors or scientists or academics would love to write a New York Times best-selling popular science book, but that always seems really difficult and quite an impenetrable thing to do. How did that project come about for you?
1: Right. So, I mean, I feel so lucky that um I don't even feel uh, in some ways qualified to to identify what happened to me as some kind of process because it was a series of um, a lot of some good fortune coupled with hard work. But um, there was good fortune uh, that as part of this. So um, writing a book wasn't even on my radar. So I was practicing cardiology. I mean, I was raising two kids. I was a professor of medicine at UC, University of California in Los Angeles. I had a very busy, um, very I love my career as a clinical doctor, right? I was um, doing a lot of cardiac imaging and heart failure, very happy. Um, And then I had the experience. I got called to the zoo, right? And I start, um, and I'm only in the, the, I mean, they're calling me probably once every few weeks. Um, At first it was, you know, it was every couple of months and then they called me for uh, a little bit more frequently. Um, And then I got completely hooked and it was like waiting for a boyfriend to call. Like, oh, is he going to call? Is he going to call? But the... So but then by the time I started really um thinking about the um, the fact that my colleagues in medicine had no awareness of this world of veterinary medicine or very low awareness. I mean there are physicians who have high awareness but um I didn't know any of them and I you know everyone in my family is an academic physician and I know a lot. Of, I mean my whole world are physicians and um when I would say to my colleagues who specialize in breast cancer, did you know that um you know, cats and dogs develop breast cancer, that, that feline breast cancer seems to be more malignant. Did you know that big cats in captivity develop high rates? Zero. It was, in fact, sometimes people would laugh actually, and which I still don't understand, but it just, so, um, and heart disease too, like, uh, you know, that there are, there are certain dog breeds like, um, what is it? Cavalier King Charles, the, the the spaniels who develop problems with their heart valves that are really similar to mitral valve prolapse, which is a common problem and, that I take care of in human patients. And gosh, so atrial fibrillation we were talking about occurs in so in dogs and in horses and in humans. And my cardiology colleagues had no awareness. In fact, I would give grand rounds at the medical center, and it was just I was saying things that would be so obvious to any veterinarian to any veterinary student. And it was kind of mind blowing. So when I realized that there was this, um, kind of bl- huge blind spot, uh, in the medical profession, particularly I'm an academic and on the academic side, I realized that there was this opportunity for me to do something to make a contribution. Um, it really was not something that I was looking for in a way, but it, I couldn't, I, I actually could not stop thinking about it. I, I, um, it captivated me and then it became a nearly an obsession. And, um, so at that point I thought, well, I can't, I don't know what I should do with it, but I guess, um, I thought, well, maybe I should write a paper or maybe I should even write a book. Um, but I was thinking more like a scholarly book, a book in the medical literature. And then actually what happened, this is like one of those, um, back in the olden days, it was the old boys club, right? Where they'd be, you know, in the cigar filled rooms. Um, this is like the female version of that. So, um, I hike in the early morning, really early, 5.15 in the morning, because by the time it's 7.30, I need the kids up and have to get everybody to school and to work, so my time is really early. And I have this amazing group of female friends who also exercise early in the morning. And um, they're, they're like, wonderful, and it's so bonding to, you know, we hike in the dark, in the mountains, it's crazy. So um, one of my walking partners is a woman who happened to be um, – a former book review editor for the Los Angeles Times, and I was um, really hopped up for a couple of years on this idea. And she, um, but I wasn't advancing it, right? I was distracted by things. And then um, she suggested that it was almost like a fix-up. She said, "You have to meet this other amazing woman who she had met uh, through uh, through preschool with their kids, right? The, it's the mommy network, uh, remarkably. And this woman." had been an editor at The Atlantic, and had moved to Los Angeles. So she's this really accomplished writer, journalist, and so she sort of paired us up. And we just hit it off, really. We um, we we continue to be writing partners and now sort of business partners. And um, she just was this kind of intellectual mind who... Uh, became kind of it was a, what they call in French a folie à deux. I mean, the two of us just couldn't get enough of it. We traveled around the world to vet schools, to all kinds of animal settings, and but she knew about um, the structure of a book, and 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 it was really Catherine's. Her name is Catherine Bowers, and it was Catherine's um, idea that this should be a popular book. This should be a, a high quality sci- popular science book, and she guided us through that process. So. Um, we, we spent about a year writing a book proposal and then when the proposal went out, we, we were very lucky that we found a, an amazing book agent, uh, again, a woman, um, and then sent it out. And we were incredibly lucky that a number of publishers wanted it. We, Knopf, uh, eventually bought it. And so, um, you know, had I not been walking with Sonia, I wouldn't have met Catherine had I not met Catherine, I wouldn't. So, uh, so to some extent it's, it's good luck. On the other hand, uh, the idea, there was a serendipity in, in being at the zoo, but if I give myself a little bit more credit, um, when I was an undergraduate at Harvard, I had worked at the Museum of Comparative Zoology and I'd been interested and I, but it sort of put my interest in zoology aside, like one of my childish interests. And then I went on like many members of my family to a proper adult profession of medicine.
0: Well, it's so great that you could rekindle that interest later in your career. One of the things we talk about in veterinary medicine a lot when we're looking at animals is anthropomorphism, which is attribution of human characteristics or behaviors or emotions onto animals. How did you go about researching your book and how did you make sure that you avoided anthropomorphism in your writing?
1: Yeah. So it's such a good question because you know I I mean, I had pets, I had a cat and my husband and I and our kids, we have two dogs, but I wouldn't call myself, I wouldn't call myself like nobody, nobody who knew me would say, Oh, Barbara, she's like such an animal person. I mean, I, you know, I love my animals, but so, um, then I, by my identity is as a scientist, like I think of myself as very, as an academic. And so I was taught coming up in school that, um, anthropomorphism was sort of a, a scientific high crime, right? That you, uh, you had to not you had to sort of look at things and not allow anthropomorphism to creep in and and I still believe that to some extent but I think that now that we know right in 2018 so much about comparative genomics that we didn't know and I mean when I was in school it was the 1960s we we didn't I mean <laughs> DNA had only barely been identified right so now we're able to compare you know the genomes across species and uh, and we We see the commonality there. And we have imaging procedures, neural imaging. We have functional MR. We know so much scientifically about how much is shared across species that um, I actually think that the real danger, if there are are polar dangers of um, anthropomorphizing on one end or on the other end, sort of assuming that human beings are so distinct and unique, right, that I think the greater scientific danger is the sort of human exceptionalism. And Catherine and I, when we invented our word zubiquity, we started calling it um, zubiquitizing, sort of that under-zubiquitizing was more of a risk than anthropomorphizing. But, but I mean, both are obviously a risk. I mean, I, I have to say that um, increasingly there's so much, I mean, you know this your field has led the way in this, but, I mean, actually it was Charles Darwin who, um, really introduced the idea of emotion in man and the animals in a public way with his fifth book, right? And his, his his final book is on the expression of emotion in man and animals, right? So this is pretty, I mean, revolutionary, right? We have, you know, the history of, of how human beings perceived emotions in animals has been pretty bleak up till not too long ago. I mean, I was told, actually, I was at a vet school, and you could probably confirm this for me, that it wasn't until the early 1970s that there was a proper textbook of veterinary anesthesiology, that there were textbooks of veterinary surgery, which included um, recommendations about with, you know, um, restraining animals or giving them agents to keep them still so that your surgical field wasn't affected. But the concept of treating pain in animals was, was rather new, that in up until the second half of the 20th century. We had a zubiquity conference where, we, I, I host these zubiquity conferences um, where we bring together a medical school and a veterinary school, and we have five topics that are shared by both species, or across species, and we have our, we have a, a, an animal case presented by the veterinary uh, staff, and we have a human case presented by the physician, and then we have the physician comment on the animal, on the you know vet comment, so we do these things. And we had one, um, at the university of Pennsylvania where we focused on pain and it was really interesting because, you know, we think of animals as not expressing pain the way humans express pain in some settings, but you know, there are many human patients who can't verbalize pain either. I mean, you've got neonates, you've got patients who are hot on a ventilator. You've got, you've got human beings who have intellectual disabilities who aren't able to articulate. I mean, there's a huge range of humans who have, you know, challenges in articulate So we were really trying to learn from veterinarians how to assess and appraise pain in a patient who is not using verbal language to, you know, express it. Um, But, but yeah, but, but the anthropomorphizing, the reason I bring the emotion is that now I, I think about um, the question of emotion in animals, because this comes up all the time, right? And how to talk about it in a proper scientific way and we are in a different universe uh from where we were even 20 years ago it's um so it's really opening things up so much so that these days if 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 someone if an intelligent observer looked at an animal over a period of time and said that animal appears anxious i don't think anyone would any thoughtful person would accuse that person of anthropomorphizing. I mean if they saw, you know, agitated behavior, um all you know, whatever the suite of anxiety type behaviors are, that's anxiety. But I think 20, 25 years ago, that person might have been accused of anthropomorphizing. You know, just to just to circle back, so even though it's like not it's not great that um, there's been such an under awareness of pain in animals. But the fact is the same. There was a parallel thing with neonate humans. So
0: mm, I was i was going to mention that actually, because I remember when I was at uni that I'm pretty sure we were taught that human babies weren't necessarily given pain relief even into the 1970s. Is that right?
1: Okay. I was, I mean, I'm, I'm old, but I'm not that. I'm not a hundred years old or 150 years old. So I was in medical school in the early eighties and I remember I was on my OBGYN rotation and it was like a super busy night. And my resident was like sending all the medical students to help in different rooms. And she pointed to me and she said, Barbara, go over to, to whatever, room three um, and do a fetal scalp monitor on this baby who was, the, the head was crowning. And I remember saying, oh, um, well, do I need to like infuse with lidocaine? Do I need to numb, numb up the skin? And I remember, I remember her saying, you don't need to, it's a neonate. They don't feel pain. So you know and and it's funny at the time i remember sort of thinking oh that's you know that's interesting a little a little surprising but you know i believed her she was the resident and of course she would know so it's um yeah there's been an evolution in recognizing pain in
0: humans as well Just on a slightly different note, we have really high proportions of women in medicine over here in the UK at graduate and junior doctor level, but that really tails off reaching consultancy levels and the upper echelons of medicine, I guess. Do you have the same attrition rates in the US and how is the situation for women in medicine over there?
1: So um, like I think the UK, yeah, medicine is becoming more feminized. I don't know if it's the majority yet, but um, medical schools are at least 50%, those classes are at least 50% women. Um, I'm not up to date on the absolute latest statistics, although um, I do know in cardiology yesterday, I spoke to someone who's um, very involved in education, cardio cardiovascular education, that I think women fellows, so that's the trainees in cardiology, it's about 13%, so that's not very high. <laughs> in cardiology. So what typically happens in medicine is that, um, women, I mean, women can enter any field they want, but they tend to gravitate toward, um, fields where there's a perception that lifestyle will be, it'll be easier to balance family. Uh, and I think in some cases that ends up being not, not the surgical fields or the surgical subspecialties. Sometimes they're, I mean, I'm making sweeping generalizations, but, Yeah. I mean, there's a really big problem I know in cardiology and I know, I think I know why. I think it's, um, it is really hard to, you know, have a very busy practice, um, and maintain a family, particularly in a field like cardiology or, or, or a very, um, demanding field where when the pager goes off, you have to attend and that's what it is. So, um, I actually don't think we've made that much progress. I wish I could say that we had. I, I, There are more women who are demanding a part-time schedule, and I think there are some clinical settings where that's happening, but um, it's slow. It's slow. Most of the leadership is, I mean, it's evolving. But we're not there yet. Thirteen percent is not right for cardiology. So true.
0: Um, and how do you maintain your work-life balance? Because you're clearly a very busy woman. Well,
1: I mean, I, you know, I'd so funny. I now I'm I'm not taking care of patients anymore. Like I stopped seeing patients about two years ago, um, after many years, and it was with some sadness. But actually, this new chapter has been actually very exciting. And you know, the expression you can't you can't dance at two weddings. And um, I really needed to fully focus on this, um, but. Uh, yeah. I, I think when I was in clinical practice and had two kids and maintaining a household and um, it was pretty stressful. I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think I, I, I look at pictures of myself sometimes in, in those days and I'm like, wow, I, I looked a little harried or a lot harried. Um, I have a terrific husband. So you're a, a husband a partner, at the moment um, for a year. And I so have tell parents you to tell who live nearby, but there. There. I don't know that I was balancing it so well then. I'm sure my children have tons of complaints about things I did wrong but um but I'm really
0: lucky I'm really happy that I have this this other chapter now it's very exciting so you're at Harvard at the moment for a year can you just tell me a little bit about what you're doing there right so
1: um I'm a visiting professor in the department of human evolutionary biology and I'm teaching courses on evolutionary medicine and what and these are to undergraduates so um Some of them are going to enter medicine. Some of them are going to become historians and economists and hedge fund managers. God knows what they're going to do, but they're taking this class. And what we do is we look at 20 diseases, right? So half of them are physical diseases. So heart attacks, melanoma, breast cancer, um, you know, Crohn's disease, right? And we look at half of them are uh, really, what we would call psychiatric diseases or biobehavioral. So, we look at anxiety, we look at separation anxiety, we look at obsessive compulsive disorder, we look at self injury, we look at anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa. Anyway, we're looking at, at human, quote unquote, human diseases. And then, and we do a little bit of mini medical school where we learn about all this, you know, sort of medical student for a day. And then we invert it and we look about, and we learn about the veterinary side. And what the students have to do for this course is they have to um, look at the crossover and begin asking questions that um, sort of come up with new hypotheses about disease. And... um, so it's been it's been great fun. I'm working on the fifth floor of the Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard, which is this um, you know 19th century building, which by the way, for America is like very old. I know when I talk to people from England, it's like, what ah, that's hmm. but this beautiful old building, and I'm um on the top floor, and it used to be the aviary, right? And it Ernst Meyer, who's this famous um, comparative zoologist, you know, he was the curator of the museum. It's his old suite. So I'm having a fantastic experience, Um, you know, LA girl in Boston, it's freezing cold, but um, it's wonderful. And I'm working with these leaders in the field that, I mean, I've used their books in my course at
0: UCLA for years. So um, it's, it's great. So what do you think is going to be next for you? Like what's in the pipeline coming up for Barbara in the next year? Yeah.
1: So Catherine and I are writing a new book. Oh, exciting. Yes. And we're actually teaching a course that's based on the book. Um, And this is, we're looking across the animal kingdom at at growing up. So in nature, if you don't grow up, you don't survive. And um, there are four core competencies that every animal has to master in order to become a functioning adult. And so what we are doing is we are looking at... um, At the universal rules really that help us understand well a lot of the trouble growing up. I mean, why so many adolescents take risks and you know can get injured and, and really have tragic consequences, and why how they how how you find your way into a group when you're a social animal and and what determines what your status level is? Is it is it high, medium, or low? And what's the effect on your your biology, if you're low ranking versus high ranking, and we're looking at how young adult animals lose their virginity. How um, you know there's a first time for every animal, and in the wild, how that happens, why it happens. Um, we're looking at questions of consent in the animal kingdom. So um, receptivity in different species, and whether the males of of whether turtle male turtles you know respect receptivity or not. So we're looking at that, and um, and then finally, we're looking at how young adult animals learn to feed themselves, how they learn to hunt and how they learn to forage. And um so anyway, that's what the new book is about. And that's we're working furiously on.
0: Wow, I can't wait to read that. Um do you know when that's gonna be coming out, Barbara? Uh that's a good question. I don't know. We're still working on it. (laughs) Sometime in due course. Yeah, yeah. You know,
1: I am so hooked on veterinary medicine. It's such a funny thing because it wasn't at all on my radar. And now like I talking to you, imagining what you do, it's just it's it's so exciting. And it's, a, it's not even like I'm some kind of, you know, super duper animal person. That's not my back. I mean, it's, uh, the whole thing is fascinating to think comparatively. The students, by the way, the students like love this stuff. And it's so relevant to
0: human life. It, at least it's the beginning of a conversation. The start of a conversation. I like that. Hopefully this will be a conversation that continues and grows. And um, as a vet, I'm so interested in the kind of collaborations that Barbara promotes Part of the way she's facilitating this is via the Zubiquity conference that she mentioned earlier. This takes place in Colorado next month with some really great content, so check it out if you're interested. I also really love what Barb says about the Mommy Network and her collaborations with the women from her walking group. It's amazing how talking to people and getting to know them can open doors in your career. Giving another woman a leg up is absolutely the best thing you can do to help the cause that's all for this time and thanks for joining us you've been listening to smashing the ceiling with me naomi Mella. please subscribe if you haven't already and feel free to leave a nice review on your favorite podcast site as it helps others to find us more importantly if you enjoyed it spread the word as word of mouth is still the most powerful form of advertising you can follow us on twitter at smashing ceiling and on instagram at smashing the ceiling and we'll hopefully see you next time